Hello, bonjour, and tensez. I'm Senator Paula Simons, and this is Alberta Unbound. Ed Struzik is an author, adventurer, academic, a travel writer, a popular historian, and one of Canada's very best environmental journalists. I myself had the great pleasure of working alongside Ed years ago in the Edmonton Journal newsroom, where his work was a constant inspiration. Two of Ed Struzik's most recent books, Dark Days at Noon and Firestorm, How Wildfire Will Shape Our Future, discuss a topic which is very much top of mind for Albertans right now, wildland fires and their impact on our communities. So I couldn't think of a better guest for Alberta Unbound this month. Here's our conversation, which we recorded on Monday, May 12th, 2023. Forest fires have always been a natural part of the life cycle of a forest. Uh, you know, as you note in your books, all kinds of animal and plant species thrive in the wake of a fire. Grizzly bears, nighthawks, uh, beetles, jack pine. So how and why are the fires that we're seeing now different and more dangerous? Well, they're not as different as we might think. Uh, the one thing that we're probably seeing more of are these pyro CBs that are that where you get a thunderstorm on a blue sky day like we're having here in Edmonton. It's just that there's so much energy coming from the fire and all the water vapor and the smoke can actually create its own thunder and lightning. We've probably had it in the past. Uh, I suspect we're seeing more of it now. I'm pretty certain of it, but I don't think the data is out there to suggest that that is actually happening. But we're certainly seeing it in places where we don't normally see it. The big difference between now and what's happened in the past is that we've got a lot of people in harm's way. And so if a fire was burning big in, say, at the turn of the century, and there was only so many people who were vulnerable. Now we've got people, industry, uh, highways in the line of fire. So it becomes that much more dramatic, that much more dangerous. And the narrative changes uh, pretty dramatically in this in this situation that we're in now i think the third thing that we're ha we're seeing which is really problematic is a weakening of the jet stream and the jet stream is what creates the weather and what drags the weather from west to east and basically it's powered by the difference in temperatures between the arctic and what we have here so the greater the difference the faster weather moves from west to east but because the arctic is now heating up so quickly uh, the difference uh, is not that great and so the jet stream is weakening and that's why we're seeing these big big heat domes oh uh, i see the west the weather squats on us and doesn't move on it's yeah it's just the jet stream just is uh doesn't have that jet fuel power that it had in the past and so it just sort of hunkers down there and uh, waits for something some change perhaps in the arctic or for farther south to kind of trigger it propel it uh, from west to east uh, and that's where we're seeing building up right now here in western canada and western north america if you look at the long range forecast i mean we're breaking temperatures every day to yeah. records every day and the forecast for next week is in the 30s and this is only may 
Uh, I, and you would recall, I'm, I'm sure, the Fort McMurray fire in 2016, we were seeing something similar happening. And everybody was going, oh, my God, you know, this is just a gaga moment for firefighters and for observers. Uh, but we're seeing a lot more of this happening, yeah. and we're going to see more of it in the future. So you have a phrase that you use for this new era, the piracine. I don't know if that's I don't know if that's your original coinage or if you've borrowed that from somebody. But what what does the piracine look like? I borrowed it. Um, it uh, Stephen J. Pine, American uh, fire historian, came up with that term. I'm pretty sure some time ago, uh, but it essentially refers to what we're seeing now is we're we're, we're in an era of fire where fire now is, uh, we're no longer masters of fire, we're slaves of fire. And we're going to see uh, fires burn bigger, hotter, faster, more often uh, as the climate continues to heat up, as that that jet stream continues to weaken. And as we fail to deal with uh, all of the people and uh, infrastructure that's in harm's way. You make a point in your writing that this shouldn't be a shock, that people were predicting this as far back as the late 80s, 1990, which is, I think, when you and I first met. So why why haven't we taken note? Why haven't we taken action? It's a good question and one that I often scratch my head trying to answer because you would think at some point, it was Mike Flanagan from the University of Alberta, who is now in British Columbia, who I think uh, did one of the very first studies making the link between climate change and wildfire and predicting that it was going to get worse. And certainly it did uh, progressively right up until the turn of the century. And then sometime around 2003, it really just kind of accelerated. It took off. I mean, virtually every year we saw something new different and catastrophic and frightening. I think the problem is is just basically our politics. Um, We have, you know, for good or for bad, we have a democratic system where people are elected every four years and many people are kicked out and we have cabinet cabinet ministers that get shuffled around. Uh, We don't have uh, leaderships in these institutions for any great length of time. We also have a bureaucracy uh, unfortunately, that uh, does not treasure expertise. If you look at many of the assistant deputy ministers and deputy ministers, say, outside of justice, for example, that would be a good one. They come from very different backgrounds. I can re- I, I have a friend of mine who's now retired, was director general of Indian and Northern Affairs, which is no longer, but uh, she was transferred into the Arctic file uh, after she did the exotic dancer file for immigration. And so you can understand that the learning curve, it's not that these people are incompetent. They're very smart. They're very bright. But we have a bureaucracy, uh, and I blame the Privy Council for this, uh, for not uh, cherry-picking people who are experts in the field and who know what to do. Uh, And I can tell you that in the world of wildfire, there are a lot of people in the bureaucracy um, at lower levels who know what's going on, but have a difficult time getting the message up to the people who can make a difference. 
And then from there, you've got politicians who are elected every four years, cabinet ministers who are also on that learning curve. And they're gone after two, three, four years, and you've got to start all over again. So there's no institutional memory. People forget that Kelowna was evacuated in 2003, that you know there were 45, 55,000 people in British Columbia that uh, had to leave their homes for a good part of the summer, and that Crow's Nest Pass 2,000 people were out of their homes for most of the summer. Uh, You'd be hard-pressed to find a politician that remembers that, the politician that's in power. And so I think this is just, you know, one of the problems that we have with with our democratic institutions. You know, the other point that you make, and it really intrigued me because you have been a journalist reporting on the environment, reporting on global warming since long before it was trendy. Yet you make the point really clearly that as much as climate change and drought are driving this, those are not the only factors. So what is it about the way that we have historically managed our forests, especially like in, in the late 20th century, that also has has set up you know this series of, of factors that make everything that much more flammable? We were in this situation before. The turn of the last century, right up until the 1920s, we had fires burning very big, very hot, and very catastrophically, especially in uh, Quebec and northern Ontario, where towns were just literally burning you know, every three or four years, uh, largely because it was the rapid settlement of those mining towns opening up the area to agriculture and people didn't know how to deal with fire we didn't have forest firefighters back then uh, if a fire burned there was no you know water bombers that would come in there were you know uh, up until around 1910 1911 there was just no firefighters on the ground to fight these fires so they just took off and nothing would stop them and uh, uh, so at some point, you know, I think the public and the media especially was really on top of this here in Canada, the Globe and Mail, Toronto Star were constantly reminding government that something needed to be done. It's astonishingly how good the reporting was back then. And uh, finally, they began to listen. And unfortunately, we adopted the American model, which was which was the 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 strategy of putting out a fire as quickly as possible. There was a rule that the fire should be put out by two p.m. the next day. You know, which is impossible. But uh, so we fought virtually every fire. Uh, that we could get at in those days. And what we did was we created a a forest, especially in the boreal forest of Canada, which is our dominant type of forest that really needs to burn. You know, a coniferous forest such as the spruce and pine, uh, the only way uh, the seeds can be released from the pine cone or the spruce cone is by heat. There are some birds that can do it, some squirrels do it, but, you know, not enough to be able to spread those seeds. And the other thing is is that uh, at some point along the way, these very, very mature trees become very vulnerable to fire. You know, I, I can look in my front window here. I've got, what, six, seven, 80 to 100-year-old spruce trees in front of our house that rightfully in the past would have been burned by Mother Nature at some point. 
Now you're not going to get me to go out there and burn them or even cut them down. You know, I'm just, I I can't do it. But, you know, we lived in the culture where we just love these trees. And when you drive from Jasper to Banff and along the Icefield Parkway, you see all these wonderful pine trees, not so much anymore because of the, uh, of the, uh, of the the mountain pine pine beetle. Yeah, which has changed things dramatically. We would have been better off lo- letting those trees burn and then have a young, f- you know, vibrant forest to take over instead of the dead ones that we have now that's basically dominating our, our national parks. So we've inherited, um, you know, a lot of baggage uh, from our forest fighting or forest management strategies in the past. And it's very much cultural because people really resent the idea of us going out there and thinning a forest or doing prescribed burns. They think, you know, we we, we are in, in a way tr- all tree huggers. Uh, but we shouldn't be because we're not on the on the West Coast where, you know, a tree can to live for 300, 400, 500 years. You know, they're not as dependent on fire as these trees are in virtually every other part of Canada. In the past, I mean, there have been huge fires in the past. And, you know, you talk about one that I, I don't remember. It's before my time, the Chinchaga Fire, which was in northern Alberta, I guess, and then into northern British Columbia. Was it in, in the Northwest Territories as well? No, it started in in northern northern BC, sort of you know around the Peace Country, and then moved right across northern Alberta and uh, just about into Saskatchewan. And it was, I think, about two hundred and seventy kilometers, uh, the, a swath of forest that just right. burned uh, for four or five months. I think two hundred and seventy-seven days, and the only the thing that put it out was the snowfall. So you make the point that that fire put so much smoke and so much particulate matter up into the atmosphere that it actually caused temperatures to drop the way a, a volcanic eruption or you know i mean you you have a comparison to the sort of the nuclear winter scenario that haunted my high school days I don't know that we know that it actually resulted in temperatures to drop, but if you compare it to what happened in Australia in 2021, uh, where we had uh, similar bigger fires burning uh, for you know that their summer and spring or late late fall and and winter, it did actually reduce temperatures by half a degree. And presumably, I suspect if we had the data, we probably have seen the same thing happening with the Chichaga fire. Is that it? It, it very likely had the same energy as a volcano. Uh, if you recall Pinatubo, uh, which blew in 91, 92, temperatures dropped by one or two degrees the following year uh, because of all of the particulates in the atmosphere that blocked out the sun's rays. And we actually had about a 90% uh, nesting failure in the Arctic because they just couldn't, they didn't have enough heat for uh, these those eggs to hatch and for the chicks to su- successfully survive. I mean, I guess it's possible that fires can mitigate or deaccelerate global warming, but you also make arguments that there are other ways in which these fires can actually end up accelerating. Yeah, it's more cycle. likely that the latter. I think that what, what we see is in the short term, for a short period of time, they can actually reduce temperatures. And there's there's some experiments being attempted to block out the rays of the sun to try to protect Arctic ice, which I think is a real mistake because I don't think we should be fiddling with that kind of thing. So I think, you know, fires have that 
like a volcano, have the ability to reduce temperatures for a short period of time, but it is not going to reduce temperatures over a long period of time because we're just pumping out too much greenhouse gas into the atmosphere. And uh, really, you're going to have to have the a good part of the world burning, you know, to turn that around. And then we're in real trouble. So when I think, you know, back to the recent history of Alberta, we had the Slave Lake fire, which was huge and shocking and led to the evacuation of Slave Lake and the destruction of a a good chunk of the community. That was followed up a few years later with the even bigger fire in Fort McMurray. So as we look at this summer's fire season, do you worry at all that Albertans have sort of become desensitized, blasé? It's like, oh, well, this is what summer in Alberta is now. Or are we seized with purpose? Are we actually uh, coming up with the funding and the strategies to to deal with this situation? I, I know that people are starting to get frustrated, you know, when their summers are interrupted, you know, where you're sitting out in the backyard and you just can't breathe. Um, and I think as we see more and more of that, people get fed up. But, you know, it's a bit like um, the day, good old days of fishing where you could always go out and catch, you know, a big trout and put it in your pan. Uh, you can't do that anymore in Alberta or anywhere in Western Canada because we fished out all of the big fish and people have accepted that. And that's what worries me is that uh, maybe at some point we're just going to accept this awful thing that's happening. And it's it's completely unnecessary. We really don't. There's a lot, lot we can do. But, you know, we have, as you well know, we we don't have strong newspaper representation anymore. So the the public discussion is uh, muted to some extent by the fact that there really isn't much of a forum in which we can discuss things and get excited and throw ideas about. Uh, You know, and even I think to some extent you're seeing uh, CBC, you know, uh, doing a lot more gibble-gabble than serious journalism. And they're not filling that void as as well as they should i don't think i count me as 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 a fan i'm i think that we really need the cbc but i also think we need the cbc to step in and play a bigger role to fill that void that uh is there now that uh, the edmonton journal is basically gone uh, so rather okay rather than getting all nostalgic about our good old <laughs> days at the journal i wanted to talk about the things that make fighting fires in Alberta particularly problematic that relate to kind of our Alberta worldview. And one of the things that really strikes me is our love affair and our addiction with ATVs. And I'm not sure how many people know or remember the role that ATVs played in the Fort McMurray fire and in in, in subsequent, well, in previous and subsequent fires. And you make the point that at one point, the Alberta government was actually considering putting a, you know, getting people to put a thing on their exhaust pipes to reduce sparking. That never happened. So, I mean, what does it say about us that, I mean, ATVs are fun, sure, but what what can we do to, to, you know, to deal with that kind of smoky bear, only you can prevent forest fires kind of mitigation by getting people to understand the dangers of ATV riding when it's, when it's hot and dry? I I think the 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 solution is just simple is just to simply close the forest off to uh, this kind of traffic when we have a heat dome building, um, and that essentially prevents somebody that has an ATV with an insulated muffler or non-insulated muffler from uh, triggering a fire. I think we're all we're now seeing that industry to some extent has uh, has jumped on board. You know, realizing that. 
they could be liable uh, if they start a fire. And so they're limiting their activity, but we need to limit recreational activity. And this government and previous governments have been loath to do that. And it's just a very simple solution. And I think the other thing that uh, we have to do, and and this is sad to say, I, I think that the next big event that we'll probably see that we haven't seen yet is a fire tear through some someplace like Edmonton's River Valley. Because we, number one, we haven't managed the forest in our river valleys in Western Canada very well. We've prevented burning from happening. We cook, we kicked out uh, the indigenous people who live live there and also did a lot of their own controlled burning in the past. And we've got, uh, we're, we are in the midst of a, what, 20, 25 year drought in Western Canada and virtually all our birch trees, you can recall when there were birch trees in Western, you know, in Edmonton, there are no birch trees left, virtually none. Aspen, about 50% of the Aspen in the River Valley are dead because of drought. And if so, if you walk, you walk, get off those paved paths in the River Valley, you're going to see an awful lot of fuel on the ground. And you're also going to see an awful lot of homeless people who trying to keep warm at night or just cooking or whatever. Uh, right here on my street in Saskatchewan Drive, we've had in the last year, we've had four fires requiring the fire department to come out uh, to deal with fires below the river, in the river valley below my house. And it's going to happen on one of these days where the wind is blowing hard. And, uh, you know, we kind of saw it the, at the, near the Hotel McDonald uh, yeah. a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I, and and if, if it, you know, or we're going to have a thunderstorm come through in the middle of the night and a lightning trigger fire, you know, followed by a very strong wind is going to overwhelm our, our fire department. Uh, there's just pockets of the river valley where you cannot get fire trucks in and a fire as we know from slave lake and fort mcmurray can travel awfully quickly yeah and jump the river too that's really disturbing i've not heard anybody talk about the risk of wildfire i've talked to firefighters about this and and you know they they publicly express confidence they can deal with these wildfires in the river valley but the reality is is if you really look around the fire can you know go 60 kilometers an hour there's not a you know there's going to have to be an awful lot of fire trucks and not enough pumping stations to get enough water on there and hopefully there'll be a water bomber nearby but when fires burn like that there's nothing really water bombers can do except for maybe steer a fire away from from houses or slow it down a little bit. You know, I, I really do believe this is a threat. Whether it's going to happen or not, I don't know. But I, I, I think it's a real possibility, given the fact that we have such a, an aged, to some extent, diseased forest that we have not managed very well. And, uh, you know, there are discussions now in play uh, with the city of Edmonton, city of Saskatoon, to turn over management of the river valleys to Parks Canada. Yeah, to have, and, to have them be urban national parks. Right. And I think that, you know, uh, give, in light of the fact that Parks Canada has been slow in the past to deal with fire, they, they at least have the know-how now uh, to be able to manage these forests. So it's a hopeful sign because I think to some extent, the city of Edmonton, city of Saskatoon, most of these, you know, river valley cities 
have really given up on their river valleys outside of that, you know, those little strips where, man- you know, the manicured public areas. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, they 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 cut down a few trees, you know, pave the path and and uh you know, hope that bikers are going to go down. But really what the bikers are doing, they're actually carving the the more wilderness parts of the forest for their mountain bikes because the the asphalt is too tame for them. You know, one of the things that was a blessing and almost a miracle in Fort McMurray is that the loss of life was so minimal. We had, you know, two young people die as a result of a car accident as they were evacuating the community. But no one no one died in the fire. And but you know I, why? I mean, think about it. Nobody goes to Fort McMurray to retire. So you have a population, you know, that's young, very mobile. Everybody is fairly well off with their pickup trucks, usually yeah, more every, than everybody more has than their own one. vehicle. Yeah. And number two, most of the people work for the oil industry, oil and gas industry. And the oil and gas industry has pretty firm safety rules in place. Is that you know, you go to a muster station if there's a fire and you do what exactly what you're told. And it was the reason why the RCMP had such an easy time dealing with these big F-150 truckers that were coming into town to try to rescue their kids in a burning area. You were at school and they're saying, you, you know, you can't go in there. And they were all feared that, you know, this big bearded guys are just going to run them over. They, they all turned around, accepted the fact that, yeah, you you know, this is what I've been trained to do. Let somebody who knows what they're doing deal with the situation, and I'll deal with what I need to do. So you've got a younger population that's mobile and also understands how to follow the rules in the situation. And, it, and, and the last thing that happened, the weather changed, the winds changed at the last minute. And really, for very fortunately, no one died and so there was a lot of things in play that made it just so lucky that we didn't see a worse outcome. So, you know, we lauded the heroes and heroines of that fire. Some of the people that we've traditionally praised for their conduct, you, you're quite a bit more critical of, especially sort of the lag time before they started the evacuation. Have we yeah, learned I mean, the we didn't lessons? call a prop, you know, uh, a provincial emergency uh, until every, after everybody was evacuated. Uh, you know, the RCMP uh, at one point realized something was was coming and decided to create their own emergency response team because uh, they felt that the re- emergency response team that was in place was being a little too cautious. You know, and and, and to some extent, this is what happens when you leave it to a group like that that's so dependent on the oil and gas industry because if you evac everybody you you know the things shut down it takes long things to shut up so the political pressures is so great it has to come from an authority that can make the decision and can take the heat and we just don't we we've been reluctant to do that and uh, unless we start changing our ways uh, there's just so much we need, so much more that we need, we need to do. We could have done since 2016 that we haven't done. So, did we learn the wrong lessons? I don't know that we learned the wrong lessons. Is that we didn't act on the lessons that uh, were so obvious to us. I mean, we see, you know, number one, that these fires will cause serious air pollution problems. 
And the only advice that we get, you know, on a 30 or 35 degree decay comes from Environment Canada, say, you know, and health authorities to shut your windows, you know, and don't go running and exercise and breathe. Uh, What we really should have is uh, community centers, libraries, places of refuge for those who have respiratory problems or pregnant women who can go to uh, that have an air filtering system in place. Uh, so that they can spend and an air conditioning uh, system in place so that they can maybe spend the day or maybe even the night uh, not having to breathe in these noxious fumes, you know, that are as bad or worse than tobacco. The Fort McMurray wildfire happened before the COVID. And I worry a bit that in this, I don't want to call it the post-COVID era because I don't think we're post-COVID, but in the, in the wake of the worst of the pandemic, if there hasn't been a kind of a breakdown in the social fabric, I mean, you talked about how compliant people were in Fort McMurray because they had been trained to deal with an emergency response and trained to listen to authority in a time of an emergency. After all of the politicization of our response to the pandemic, I'm a little bit worried that there are forces out there who have weaponized the culture of rugged individualism in Alberta to the point that people are going to be much less likely to listen if the RCMP tell them to evacuate than they might have been before 2020. Oh, I think we're already seeing that happening. We're seeing it happening now in Alberta. We've seen it happen to some extent in British Columbia. Uh, it's a it's a it's a real problem. This distrust of government and authority. Uh, people uh, just you know we've just had this breakdown that I don't see being rectified anytime soon. And uh, I really don't have any any answer to that, except that perhaps one of the solutions is to empower local communities to make those decisions. Uh, one of the problems now with dealing with wildfire is that, you know, it does tend to affect small communities that don't have the tax base or the resources to be able to do with all of these things. If we had a national wildfire strategy or management system in place, we could empower uh, many of those communities, and many of them are Indigenous communities, with the resources and the know-how to be able to respond more effectively. And it would be their decision to some extent. I wanted to end by talking a little bit about you. You have spent you know, a lifetime, your adult lifetime, in the West and the North, writing with such passion about people of the West and the North. But that's very much a choice. I mean, you're not originally from Alberta, although you've lived there a very long time. You could have lived all kinds of other places, I mean, you spent time at Harvard and at Yale and uh, at Queens. So what is it about Edmonton, about Alberta, about the Northwest that so captured your heart and your spirit? Well, I think you know the answer to this. There's no question about it is that I think Alberta, and I think especially Edmonton, is is really misunderstood by the rest of the population for a, vi- a variety of reasons. The rest of Canada doesn't appreciate that we probably have more book readers per capita than any other part. Up until the pandemic, we had more theater go- goers than any part of the population. We have a great festival. We've got classical music. We've got museums. We've got really wonderful restaurants. We've got the mountains. We've got the prairies. We've got the boreal forest. Uh, and we've got uh, the West Coast just an hour flight away if we need to <laughs> see see the ocean. 
And I think, but the other thing that I think that stands out for me is that it still is a, uh, uh, to some extent, an immigrant uh, population where most people, there is no family compact as there is, you know, in Ontario, uh, Southern Montreal. People here grew up uh, thinking that there are a lot of possibilities. And I think we continue to think that way. Thank you very much, Ed Struzik. And thank you, everybody, for listening in. Thank you. Ed Struzik's book, Firestorm, How Wildfire Will Shape Our Future, is published by Island Press. His even newer book, Dark Days at Noon, The Future of Fire, is published by McGill-Queens University Press. Alberta Unbound is produced and edited by Caitlin Cummings and written and presented by me, Senator Paula Simons. If this is your first time listening, welcome! We have a fantastic backlist of episodes featuring interviews with all kinds of remarkable Albertans. I hope you'll check them out. And whether you're a new listener or a regular fan, please do take a moment to rate us or write a review or share this episode on your various social media outlets. Thanks again. Merci and hi hi.